Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Oh, man, this week is week three of our teaching series called Through It All, a study in the book of Habakkuk. we got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I'm going to dive right in. And we're going to start off with a quick recap so that we are all on the same page as we move forward uh, throughout the remainder of this series, this content this morning. What we already know is that Habakkuk is a prophet in Judah. And the nation of Judah, he's living during the time when they're living in great sin among the people. And it's in light of what Habakkuk sees, the injustice, the violence, the corruption, that leads him to cry out to God. And he says in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? And then it goes on to say in verses 5 through 11, we see God's response to Habakkuk's complaint. And we learn that God is going to use the Babylonians, this evil nation, to bring justice and to punish the people of Judah for their sins. But Habakkuk's not too thrilled by that plan, using an enemy of theirs to punish his own people. And so he essentially cries out to God saying, the Babylonians are way worse than us. So how can you use them to punish us? How can you use that evil nation to bring about justice and course correction in our lives? Last week we talked about God's response to Habakkuk in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2. And we learned that God will respond to evil and that God will respond to injustice. Not just when it comes to the Babylonians, but for every form of evil and injustice in generations to come. And of course the challenge for us as Christ followers is that God's method of bringing that about or his timing doesn't always line up with ours. We want God to do it our way, or we want God to operate on our timeline, and so that becomes a challenge for us. We also learn that when we're going through difficult circumstances, God calls us to live by faith, which is trusting that God is who he says he is, and that he will do everything he promised to do through it all, in every circumstances, high, low, up and down. We want to have double-fisted faith, meaning whether or not God chooses to act, we will cling to him with both hands. And then even though God is using the Babylonians to punish the people of Judah, we know that he doesn't condone their behavior. As a result of their violence and their corruption, they're guilty in God's eyes. And he makes it clear that the Babylonians will be punished at this, quote, appointed time in the future. So this morning, we're going to get some further insight into some of the Babylonians' issues, the things that they have done wrong. And not only that, but what God has in store for them and any future nation who operates in a similar way. So I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, or navigate there on your Bible app, Habakkuk chapter 2, and we're going to be starting off by looking at verse 6. Allow me to read that for us. It says, Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? 
Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? Now, allow me to fill in some gaps because otherwise this doesn't make sense. God is speaking here, and he's in the middle of his response to Habakkuk's complaint from chapter 1. However, verse 6 is this transition to the future appointed time that was referenced back in verse 3. And this appointed time is now when God is going to to bring about his plan to have justice come and, and bring justice on the nation of Babylon. And so when that appointed time comes, God says that all the people, all the nations that the Babylonians have wronged will be the ones who taunt the Babylonians. In other words, it's only a matter of times before the tables turn. In time, those who have been wronged will stand in judgment of their oppressors, announcing their sins and declaring the consequences of their actions. And while the sins of the Babylonians are many, they are specifically called out in five ways in chapter 2. Each of those ways accompanied by a statement of woe, W-O-E. And these five woes describe the type of oppression and injustice perpetrated by the Babylonians. So now here in chapter 2, we see that there's this element of what goes around comes around. But more accurately, these upcoming verses that we're going to look at are a living illustration of Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, which says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from the nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And it will become very clear to us in just a moment that the Babylonians have sown to please their sinful nature and therefore destruction is coming. And so let's briefly address each of these first or these five woes, starting off with the first one in verses 6 through 8. Allow me to read it for us. It says, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the, nation, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. See, here we learn that the Babylonians have become a wealthy nation. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But the means by which they achieved their wealth is problematic. It has been stolen from others, taken by force. However, this practice will not go on forever. Verse 7 indicates that those who have been wronged, the victims who are now the creditors, will arise and come against the Babylonians. See, they have taken from so many people, but they're not going to get away with it. And what they have stolen will turn into a debt that is owed and must be repaid to those they have wronged. And so in this dramatic turn of events in verse 7, it says, You, the Babylonians, will become their victim. And just as the Babylonians have plundered other nations, they too will be plundered. And scripture talks about the fall of Babylon in a few different places, including Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 50, and Daniel chapter 5. Now, the second woe is found in verses 9 and 11. It says this, Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. 
The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. You see, like the first woe, this one focuses on the unjust economic practices of the Babylonians. They meant for their unjust gain to position them in a place of prominence and security. Just as an eagle builds his nest high in a tree as a means of protection and security, what they achieved at the expense of others was meant to set their nest on high. It was meant to bring security and escape from any potential threat that might come their way. However, this turn of events then comes in verse 10. See, many people have been taken advantage of and harmed by the unjust practices of the Babylonians, but their unjust gain will not allow them to escape ruin. Despite their best efforts to protect themselves, their evil practices will eventually be their downfall. And in this poetic expression, it says that even the building materials they use to construct their cities to provide security will cry out against their injustice. The third woe was found in verses 12 to 14. And it says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Now the focus of this indictment is the means by which the Babylonians have built their empire. And as expressed previously in Habakkuk chapter 1, the Babylonians have used violence to bring about their way. And what they have built and have established has become quite large because no other nation was able to resist them. No other nation was able to stop their advances. However, what they have built will not last. Verse 13 makes that very clear. It says the work that they have done or, or forced others to do, the people's labor is only fuel for the fire. And so they work and they work and they work to get power and money but it says they exhaust themselves for nothing. In other words, it's an exercise in futility. It won't last. God's judgment will be like a fire that consumes their corrupt empire. And in contrast to that, verse 14 declares what will last. The glory of the Lord is what will cover the earth, and no earthly kingdom will ever be able to say that, no matter what they do or how hard they try. The fourth woe was found in verses 15 through 17, which says, Woe to get him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood, and have destroyed lands and cities, and everyone in them. And see, this image that's painted for us in verses 15 through 17 is, is most likely figurative and literal. It talks about the Babylonians exploiting other nations, using alcohol to cause drunkenness so that they may, quote, gaze on their naked bodies. But again, in verse 16, it makes it clear that they will reap what they have sown. God is going to bring judgment on them in the form of exposure and shame and disgrace. And then finally, we get to the fifth woe. And it's found in the last few verses of chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. 
And it says, of what value is an idol since a man has carved it? Or an image that teaches lies? For he, for he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And it's clear from, that this woe is all about idolatry and the foolish, foolishness of putting your trust in an image or creation that cannot give guidance and has no breath in it. And while they created and worshipped physical idols, we know that idolatry is placing anything above God. And we see an example of that in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 11, where God says that their military strength is their God. And so in essence, they're trusting themselves. But verse 20 makes it clear that the only one who is worthy of worship is the Lord, who is in his holy temple. And despite what the Babylonians may believe, and, or who and what they may worship, God alone sits on the throne, and all things are under his control and within his power to manage. And it's all well and good to know that, right? But what does that have to do with us? I mean, maybe it's interesting to you to know, okay, this is how God brings about his promised justice. He said he was going to punish the Babylonians, and now we see that this promise will be fulfilled, and, and this is what it's going to look like. And oh, hey, great, it's another example of God's faithfulness. But what does this have to do with our lives today? How does this impact my life right now? And while God addresses some of the specific issues of the Babylonians, these are not just Babylonian issues. Each of these woes could be made about any nation who does not pursue God. One commentator suggests that Babylon is not unique, but rather most nations that rise to power eventually become a version of Babylon. Because human beings are evil and were corrupt at heart. And so God's response in chapter 2 is not only his response to Habakkuk, but it's his response to future generations, to you and I who encounter evil and ruthless nations like Babylon. And that being said, if every superpower or nation that rises to power has the propensity to become like Babylon, then as Americans, we don't have to look outside our borders to see the truth of that statement. As a global superpower, all we have to do is hold up a mirror. And while I enjoy living in America and the countless freedoms that we have and the opportunities afforded to us, it's also pretty easy to see some parallels between the issues of Babylon and some issues in our own country. We're guilty of the same things. For example, the first woe addressed to the Babylonians focused on the means by which they achieved their wealth. They were bullies. They pushed people around, conquered and plundered other nations. They took what they wanted and padded their own pockets. And I don't know if there's an exact modern-day example, though there probably is, and I just couldn't think of one. But the story of the Babylonians would probably sound pretty familiar to the Native Americans who live in our country. 
getting pushed around, things taken from them. And as a superpower today, who often holds the upper hand in most situations, I would imagine that the way we do business tends to leave someone else, especially on a global scale, it tends to leave someone else, even the workforce in other countries, with the short end of the stick. They work for a few dollars a day, while we, or businesses, corporations in our country, line their pockets. Got more money than we know what to do with. The second woe focused on the unjust economic practices of the Babylonians to create this position of prominence and, and security in an effort to escape potential threats. And when we look in the mirror, we can see that our motivation for economic gain, sometimes it's on the up and up, sometimes it's a little shady, but, but either way, it's probably similar in our country. We want to be in a position of prominence. We love that. It's part of the American dream. And the bottom line, speaking financially, the bottom line is what brings our security. Our feelings of feeling safe and comfortable are often tied to our finances. The third woe speaks of the Babylonians' work to become a powerful and wealthy nation. But at the end of the day, it's an exercise in futility. God says they exhaust themselves for nothing because the foundation of the empire that they have built isn't glorifying to God. And if we're being honest, I think we'd be hard-pressed to say that we live in a Christian nation, one that is actually guided by and influenced by God's word. The fourth woe addressed or addresses the sexual exploitation and perversion within Babylon. I don't think i got to say a whole lot to convince you that that's a major problem here. Sex trafficking in our country is alive and well. Pornography is a billion-dollar-plus business a year. And God's design for sex and for marriage has been abandoned by the majority. The fifth woe focuses on the topic of idolatry among the Babylonians. And unfortunately, idolatry is all too common here as well. Pastor Timothy Keller defines an idol as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything you seek to give you, what only God can give. And so whether it's power or money or fame or comfort or sex or even family or something else, we, both nationally and individually, allow so many things to take the place of prominence in our lives that ought to be reserved for God alone. And all that to say, I think that commentator is right. Our sin nature has led us to become a version of Babylon. And if that's the case, what should our response be as Christians who live in America. What should our response be? What should we do about that? And while there's nothing inherently wrong about wanting the place where you're from and the place where you live to thrive, I think we also need to be very careful about getting too swept up in or overly concerned by the prosperity of our country. You see, as we just highlighted, most nations that rise to power eventually become a version of Babylon, and we're no exception. And so for followers of Jesus, 
Therein lies the danger, the problem, when we place our nationality above our Christianity. When we identify as American before Christ follower. When we say, I'm all about America more than I'm about Jesus and the way. That is problematic. And certainly we can strive for the well-being of our community and our country. And if you're living out your faith, that will be a natural byproduct wherever you go. Because you will be a light to all that you come in contact with. You will be able to show grace and love and compassion and justice because you're a Christ follower. It'll be a natural byproduct. But above all else, we're followers of Christ. Absolutely everything else takes a back seat to our identity in Christ. Everything else takes a back seat to our faith and relationship with Jesus. As Christians living in America, we can't forget that this world and this country, it's not our true home. This isn't our home. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, talking about those who lived their lives by faith in God, the author of Hebrews writes, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Meaning, our primary focus is not the greatness of America or making it great again, depending on who you talk to. See, as Christians, our focus ought to be on a different kingdom, not an American one, but a heavenly one. And we're called to do everything that we can to bring God's kingdom here on earth. We're even called to pray for it, right? In the Lord's Prayer. But I promise you, making that a reality, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, I promise you, that is not dependent on a single political party. It is not. Whether their favorite color is red or blue. And for that reason, we have to be very careful about staying exclusively on one side of the political aisle. You want to know why? Because Jesus isn't on either. And so every time we say, this is who I am, and how could anybody ever be a Christian or love God and vote that way, believe these things? And even for those who aren't believers, do you realize you're isolating other people who your primary responsibility is to love them and draw them to the Lord? See, Jesus isn't on either side. And because of that, we better consider every issue from Jesus' perspective and make sure that any view that we have politically falls in line with Scripture. CNN doesn't get to tell us what to believe. Fox News doesn't get to inform our viewpoint. Scripture does. And if that's true, if that's true, 
I guarantee you, you won't be able to vote exclusively red or exclusively blue. You won't be able to do it. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, your primary focus is fulfilling the great commandment and fulfilling the great commission. Simple. We're called to love God. We're called to love others. We're called to make disciples of Jesus, to point people to life in him. We're not called to live our lives for the glory and preservation of a nation that can't bring about God's glory on this earth. That's not the role of America. That is the role of the church. You and me and every other believer in nations, in countries, all over the world. And while grasping this truth and applying it certainly has seemed to become a challenge for the church in America right now, we can take some comfort knowing that we're not the only ones who screwed it up. See, even while Jesus walked the earth, the Israelites struggled with misplaced priorities. They were more focused on the success and the greatness of Israel than the kingdom of God. And we see this as an example of this in, in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And right after Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 plus people, John writes, after the people saw that the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who came into the world. Now check this, don't miss it. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew. Withdrew. Again to a mountain by himself. The Jews wanted Jesus to rise to power and free the Israelites from Roman oppression. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Believe it or not, he wasn't walking around with a hat that said, make Israel great again. He wasn't doing that. And as one commentator writes, ruling an earthly kingdom would have sidetracked Jesus from his divinely appointed purpose to establish the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom throughout the entire world. And unfortunately, I think the American church has gotten sidetracked from our divinely appointed purpose. We're not here to promote the greatness of America. Rather, we are here to promote the greatness of God and work toward expansion of God's kingdom here on earth. We're not here so that America's will is done. We're here so that God can use us, his Holy Spirit empowering us to have God's will done on earth. And that rarely has anything to do with what America wants. We're called to love God, love others, and make disciples. The third and final chapter of Habakkuk is a prayer set to music, kind of like a song. And it's written by Habakkuk in response to his prior conversation with God. And despite having told Habakkuk the plan to use the Babylonians to punish the people of Judah... The beginning of chapter 3 reveals that Habakkuk is still hoping for some kind of alternative plan. He's like, God, is there any other way? And in verse 2 it says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. 
See, Habakkuk is well aware of how God has intervened on behalf of his people in the past, and now Habakkuk is pleading with God to do it again in the present. God, come to our aid once more. If you fast forward all the way down to verses 16 and 19, it's one of the most well-known sections of the book in chapter 3, whole book of Habakkuk, but certainly chapter 3 as well. And while Habakkuk had hoped that God might choose to change course and provide an alternative route, we see that Habakkuk now seems to accept that God's plan to use the Babylonians to punish the nation of Judah, it's, it's going to happen. It will be fulfilled. And understandably, Habakkuk's a little fearful. He's a little anxious. He is not enjoying the uh, thought of impending judgment. And in verse 16 it says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. And when things aren't going well in our lives or if we're facing or getting ready to step into maybe an extended season that we know is going to be uncomfortable, painful, challenging for whatever reason, we might have similar feelings. We might be fearful. We might experience anxiety. But notice how Habakkuk responds in verses 16 to 19. It says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to go on the heights. Habakkuk doesn't sugarcoat his circumstances. He fully acknowledges that things aren't good. He's not looking forward to what's coming. But despite the challenges that await him, what we talked about last week is that Habakkuk chooses to maintain his faith in God. He has double-fisted faith. He clings to God with both hands, believing that God will ultimately fulfill his promises. And therefore, Habakkuk is one of the righteous who will live by faith. And as our series comes to a close, my hope and prayer is that we would be a church that is all about the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom here on earth. And as we consider the challenges or confronted with challenges and difficulties that come with living in a land like Babylon, may we choose to maintain our faith in God, knowing and believing that he's in control and that he will keep his promises. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.